Well, we're going to get started, so let's pray and we'll get started in Second Samuel chapter 20. Lord, we thank you for this evening, for this time, and we do pray that our this, this would be an opportunity for us to encounter the scriptures and allow you to speak through them to us, Father, that we would have dialogue with you and you with us and that you would bless this time and you would enrich it. Thank you again for an opportunity to gather here. We ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Second Samuel chapter 20. Remember, David has been banished by his son, Absalom, chased out of the kingdom. The kingdom was taken over for a period of time, a short period of time. We're not sure how long. And now David has become victorious. His son, Absalom, was killed. David was mourning, and then basically he had to snap out of it and get back to being king. And so he's come back to Jerusalem. But then as he was coming back, there was a little uh, just kind of a grief between the people in Israel and the tribes, the ten tribes that are up there in the north, and Judah who brought David back. And the complaint was, why do you get to bring the King David back? He's coming back to Jerusalem. We should have the honor of bringing him back. And it seems petty, at least to me, but it was something that was a big deal to them. And so it kind of ended on that note where there was a little disgruntled thing taking place. And so now in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Berkri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son, every man to his tent. And so he starts rallying, saying he picks up on this opportunity of discontentment and uses it to say, okay, we're not going to go with you. Everyone to his tent. In other words, get back to your home. We're going to rally ourselves together. And so we really see that there was never really an intention to honor David. Because now they're not with David. They're not with the son of Jesse. We're not going to stand by him. In fact, every man to his tent, Israel. And so this statement, Israel, is actually a statement kind of like, you know, long live the South or something. It was one of these things where we're going to have our reign instead. And so David will be down here and we want to start usurping ourselves in this place. It's amazing how whenever there is discontentment, that there is opportunity for people to feed that. And I think we all need to be careful of this. I, I know I do. When I hear about something that there's a problem with, you know, a, a person or a family or a church or name it, a business, and you know that there's some disgruntled people there, well, it's easy to chime in. It's easy to kind of get people rallied around that disgruntled attitude. And if you do so, you just kind of start creating more and more problems. And that's what Sheba's doing. 
It's like, okay, people are upset. I'm going to rally it up and I'm going to make it something more substantial. And this is the opposite of Jesus's blessed are those who are peacemakers, you know, for they will be called the sons and daughters of God. I mean, this is not making peace. This is stirring up strife. And so we should always ask ourselves, are we making peace or are we stirring up strife in our conversations? Because here we see him doing just that. Verse 2. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from Jordan to Jerusalem. And so in this path, there's this confrontation, and these people from Israel go their way with Sheba, but the men from Judah continue on with David. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Now, you guys remember this story and why this took place? Chapter 16, Absalom, what did Absalom do? He came in, publicly slept with them to make a, a kind of a public shame that David is no longer king, I am king, look what I have done. And again, it was by the advice of Ahithophel that he did these things. And and so David comes back and no doubt has heard about these things. And so now he's got these concubines and he says, okay, I'm going to put you guys in a home. I'm not going to be with you because of what's happened with you. And we can't give you to someone else to be married. So Basically, they were exiled to be widows the rest of their lives. What do you guys think about that? You don't? Bad, good, sad, huh? I mean, the collateral damage from Absalom and originally even from David, which we've talked about with him and his children and how he's dealt with them, the collateral damage keeps just snowballing. You know, here's a person now who has to deal with it, and here are 10 people who have to deal with it. And think about that. I mean, we don't know the age of these ladies, but the rest of their life, they are not going to be married. They're not. They're banished to this home to live kind of in exile. I mean, they were taken care of. They had a home, they had food, but they didn't really have a life. And I just think about how we have no idea the effect that what we do has on the people around us to such a great extent. And that's exactly what we see taking place here. We see now these ten widows remaining in that state. Even though they were married to David, they were defiled by Absalom, and so now they're banished, and it wasn't their fault. You know, they, they did nothing wrong. In fact, they did their job, and then they were mistreated, and then it seems that they're mistreated still. Part of it is the culture and how women were dealt with, and part of it is just how they're supposed to, you know, how are they supposed to continue on um, in this manner. So, any other thoughts just on those verses from 
the beginning? No, but they were belonged to David. I mean, they weren't really married. They were just, I guess, his property in a sense. Um, yeah, now they're just banished. And, and so the whole idea is at least they had David. <laughs> Whoopee. Um, you know, him and his all his other women, but now they had no one. And, and there is a stigma to that at this culture in this time because now they don't have a man where before they did belong to the king. Any other thoughts, questions? Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Now, who is Amasa? He's David's nephew, and he was the commander to Absalom's army. Remember? And David came back and he said, Hey, listen, I'm going to make you the commander instead of Joab to my army. And what David was trying to do was just bring this kind of reconciliation. We're going to stop all this warring. And I'm, I'm not coming to cause more problem. In fact, I'm going to hire you on and have you take the place of my chief commander. And so Amasa has been put into this position now to be in charge of David's men. And so the king said to Amasa, summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. Now he's summoning the people so that they can get troops together to go after Sheba. He's wanting to get the people there quickly so that they can go and squash out what Sheba's doing. This is, remember, the advice that was given to Absalom by Ahithophel, but Absalom didn't take the advice. Instead, he took the other advisors who were actually spies for David, and it gave David time to make a plan to fortify himself, and they won the battle, where if Ahithophel would have won that council, they would have immediately gone up after David, could have maybe overtaken him while he was just in this emotional wreck of a state. And so David is saying, hey, we need to go really quick. Three days, I want you to be back here so that we can get these men and get this army raised up. But verse 5, when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had sent for him. David said to Abishai, this is another one of his nephews, whose brother was Joab, okay? A lot of nepotism taking place here in the kingdom. Now, Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Kurathites and the Pelethites, and these are basically missionaries. They, they weren't Jews but they were working alongside David's men. And all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. This is such a, a, an interesting passage in that there is so much socially taking place here, where we see the interaction and dynamic between people. David has not taken Amasa and slain him because he was once Absalom's general. He, he's given him opportunity. said, hey, you can take charge. You can be over the army. And then he gives him something to do. I want you to go and in three days be back. But 
Amasa took a little bit longer, didn't quite do the job that he wanted, so he had to get someone else. It's, it's one of those things where your friend needs a job, and you say, hey, I know a place that's hiring. Okay, so they hire your friend based on your recommendation, and then the manager comes up to you who hired your friend and said, hey, your friend never shows up on time and does a lousy job. And then you're like, oh, and what do you do? It's like, well, you know, he's my friend, but I'm sorry, he's not doing the job right. And so there is this dynamic that's taking place. You know, Amasa, I gave you a job to do. It was urgent, but he was taking a little bit longer. And we know from the encounter with Joab and Amasa that Joab just routed him. So Joab is a much better leader militarily than Amasa was. But David gave him a chance. And now he's not quite coming through. It's taken him a little bit longer. So David says, I can't wait. Now, once you say, I can't wait, and you get Abishai to start doing what you just asked Amasa to do, you've created another dynamic socially. Because now what's going to happen when Amasa finds out that I didn't trust him and didn't wait long enough for him to do it, but it got Abishai to go do it instead because I wasn't happy with his job. Now you've got that dynamic of relation into it. Can any of you guys relate to this? You know, things that happen between people. And there is this dyna- dynamic that takes place. Well, I, I wanted you to, oh, but you didn't. But So I got this person. Well, why'd you get Didn't you believe I could do that? But you didn't, so I had to get them because it was urgent. I needed this done right away. And so there's a lot that's taking place here, and there's a lot of potential for problems. And that's always the case when you deal with one another. Misunderstanding. Just like Alex and I in our text to each other, not this Alex, Alex Ortiz and myself. We had this text. He was telling me he was going to be gone you know, today. And anyway, the, the whole conversation was just misunderstood. And I said, oh, yeah, no problem. You know, I know someone. If you need me, I can get a hold of them. And he said, okay, cool. And okay, cool meant, yeah, go ahead and get them. But I didn't think okay, cool meant go ahead and get them. I thought okay, cool meant nice to know, but I've got it covered. And so there is this misunderstanding here, but now I'm talking about Alex on tape, you know, and, and now if he hears that, he's going to say, what, man, I, you didn't, you tried to talk about it on tape? Well, no, you just text me on my phone and, and I saw it and we were talking about it and it fit. So I, I thought it was of God. Um, <laughs> there's just this dynamic that happens and it happens. And yeah, I, I wasn't clear. I should have made myself clear and maybe he wasn't clear. He could have made himself clear. What do you do from here? Where do you go? And sometimes you have to tell your friend, hey, your guy, your friend can't work here anymore. They're just no good. And then they're mad at you because they got fired. It wasn't my fault you got fired. You were a lousy worker. But yeah, why didn't you stick up for me? Because you were a lousy worker. And so Amasa, he's a lousy worker. He's slow. He doesn't get the job done. Abishai now gets these men, these mercenaries, these mighty warriors, and they're heading out. In verse 8, while they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. And so here comes Johnny come lately. Hey, I'm back. You know, I am the commander. Whatever's going on, he just shows up. 
a little bit late, but he's coming to the party. And so here comes Amasa. He comes to meet. Joab was wearing his military tunic, and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Now, this is important because this is a setup here. So here comes Amasa, and here's Joab with his dagger in his sheath and his belt. As he steps forward, it accidentally falls out, so it's on the ground. And so now there's the dagger there on the ground out of the sheath. Joab said to Amasa, how are you, my brother? And actually, he is his cousin. Then Joab took Amasa by the beard, which was an endearing term. It's something that they would do in greeting and to give him a kiss. With his right hand to kiss him, Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand. Why wasn't he? Because he saw it drop. And so here comes Joab. Oh, my dagger fell. Here, let me pick that up. Hey, how are you? Grabs him by the beard to give him a kiss. And then plunged the dagger into his belly and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. He didn't need to. Once was enough. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba on Bikri. Wow. Joab has done this before. Joab is, I'm going to do things my way kind of guy. And so it could be that Joab didn't trust Amasa because he was, after all, with Absalom. It could be he was a little ticked because Amasa took his job as the commander. Not only that, you were late. It's kind of an extreme way to deal with being late, but probably less people would be late. Um, And so here's this just brutal incident, this just tricking him. Oh, look it, I dropped mine off. Hey, man, how's it going? And then guts him right there and then leaves him to die. And the odds are he didn't die right away. He probably was there for a period of time, immobilized and dying. I mean, it's just an awful situation. One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. What would you say? I'm with you. <laughs> Put the knife away. I'm with you. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. And the man saw all the troops came to halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped He dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. What are your thoughts on this little tale? Anything stand out to you? (laughs) Besides, he just killed a guy and gutted him and left him there? Pretty brutal. I think it's interesting that everyone would come by and stop and see him. What do you think that meant? Why would they stop? I mean, they've, these warriors have seen people dead before. They've seen a lot of brutal things. What made this stand out to them? He was supposed to be the commander. It's like, who killed the commander? Is this okay? Everyone good with this? 
you know. And so this is this was someone who's supposed to be with us. Now remember, there's a lot going on right now. I mean, in a short period of time, David's son had risen up, tried to take over the throne, had been fought back, killed. David is coming back, and now Sheba rises up, starts this revolt, starts accumulating people, and leaves. There's a new commander-in-chief, and now here he is dead. There's a lot going on to process in a short period of time. This is a whole lot of happening. There's a, a coup. There's the uh, taking the things over. There's the you know new cabinet that's put in place that's now just been killed. And now we're still going on with the plan. And so a lot of people stop because something doesn't seem right about this. Wait a second. That's Amasa. Why is he dead? What did he do? What's going on here? And so you can imagine people being troubled about that. And again, that's why one of Joab's men stood up and said, hey, whoever's with us, you know, let's go. And so they take them aside because they don't want to stop the people from starting another revolt. Hey, we're not going to follow you. You killed the leader here, our commander. So verse 14 Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Mekath. Now, this is way up north and through the entire region of the Bichrites, who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel Beth Mekath. They built a siege ramp up to the city and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. It was someone's mom. <laughs> I'm telling you. He went toward her and she asked, are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, long ago, they used to say, get your answer at Abel. And that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. And that's what Abel means, this place, this gate where they were battering it down. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. See, there's the mother thing. We've been here. We've been caring for Israel all along. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? What do you guys think about this little discourse? Anyone else just like marveled by this? Some lady sticks, yeah, just sticks her head out. Hey, give me the commander. Get him over here. And just demanding. And I could see these guys with the battering. Oh, okay, hold on. We'll get him. She, she was like really mad. We better get her. I mean that she had a voice. And she actually spoke and said, get Joab. And that Joab did come. And she goes, that you, Joab? And then it says that she was a wise woman. In other words, she was able to have a conversation that connected Joab to what she wanted him to understand. She brought that about. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 19. There's an incident with Solomon. It's just a short passage. 
chapter 9, I'm sorry. No, 19. Chapter 9, starting at verse 13. I saw, also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man, so I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. This so reminds me of what we're reading here. You know, here's a person without power, but the power of her ability to communicate is actually able to change the course of what's going to happen. And again, we see Solomon looking back to this and saying, I remember something, I saw something, and it troubled me. And the reason it troubled Solomon is because this poor man didn't have wealth, didn't have strength. He was a poor man in a small city. So he wasn't a big fish in the ocean. He was a guppy in a puddle. He was just a small person, but he made a big difference. And here's an instance where this woman takes it upon herself to make a difference. And she stands out. She shouts out. She calls out to Joab. Why are you trying to to kill us? Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Verse 20. Joab responds to her, which is amazing. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. (laughs) Right. That is not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man, and I'll withdraw from the city. So he gives this condition. Give over Sheba. And we'll withdraw from the city. Listen to her reply. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is now the new headlines of the city on the Wall Street Journal there. <laughs> here, here this woman says, we're, we're going to get his head to you. We'll throw it over the wall. She's a matter of business. I'm, I'm telling you, this was somebody's mom. And she said, you're not going to break down and kill my son. I'll go and kill this she before you. I'll be head of myself and I'll get you the head. Anyway, the woman went to all the people with her wise advice. Hey, here's my advice. Kill him. We live. And they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? That's just like, oh my gosh. Here is Sheba getting up his armies, and this one woman says, hey, we got to end this. You guys, we just need to get his head and get it to Joab, and this will end. And everyone said, okay. And they did it. And so... It's a brutal time, brutal way of life. But now everyone's probably had a party or something afterwards. Verse 23, Joab was over Israel's entire army. Don't let that pass too quickly. Okay. Why is he over? Well, he just gutted the guy who used to be over it. 
And even though he again took his own initiative, David kept him in this place. Why do you think that is? Why would David keep him in this commander position? He's good. (laughs) He got the job done. You know, he was the guy who stood on the wall. You can't handle the truth. You know, he was that guy who said, yeah, you want me to get the job done? Okay, I'm going to get it done. And so doesn't mean it was the right choice, but it was David's choice. He was effective. He went back to being Israel's army leader. We don't see him being upset. Yeah, he might have said, huh, oh, well, yeah. I mean, David doesn't show any, like, in reaction about that. Um, and we assume he knows because we know. I'm sure he knew, you know. So Joab was over Israel's entire army. Benaniah, son of Judea, was over the Carathites and Perathites. Remember those, those mercenaries? Adenorian was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahiluid, was recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadak and Abathar were priests. And Ira and Jarrett other person was David's priest. And so here's David's new cabinet. He's got his new political posse there in place, and he's setting up this new position. From 21 to the end of this book is really kind of just the appendix almost of the book. There's some stories here, but it's really summing up the end of things here. But it's an interesting turn of events. I don't think we're going to get through the song in chapter 22, but we do want to cover chapter 21. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his bloodstained house. It is because he put the Gibbonites to death. Now, there's a lot of things in this paragraph that we just don't know. During the reign of David, we don't know. I think you alluded to this, Mike, was, you know, because we're going to see the killing of some of Saul's sons or grandsons. When did this take place? Was this earlier on after Absalom sometime or was this before Absalom? And we don't really know at that time because We just don't have that information. We also don't have the account of how Saul put the Gibeonites to death. There's no record of that. So we don't know chronologically what's taking place. The Gibeonites, as Joshua was moving into the promised land, came with trickery and came as if they'd been wandering from a long way away. They came with moldy bread and their shoes were worn out. And they said, hey, we hear you guys are coming here. We just want you to leave us alone. Uh, We're not here to cause you any harm. Make peace with us. And they thought, well, since they're not close to us and far away, all right, we'll make peace with you. And then they found out that they were close by. And they said, you guys tricked us. You weren't from a distant land. And they said, well, okay, since you tricked us, we still are going to uphold our agreement, but you're going to work for us. You're going to be our labor force. And so there was this agreement, this covenant made with the Gibeonites that we weren't going to wipe you out, but you would have to basically work for us. But Saul wiped them out. At some time, we don't know when. Verse 2, the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, 
The Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? A couple questions come up in this passage to me. Anything strike you guys about this? One of the questions I think about is, why is this happening now? Saul has been passed for years now. Even if it was before Absalom, Saul is out of the way. And now there's three years of famine and now God brings it up but it had happened a while. Why does it all of a sudden come up now? I think that's interesting. Why do you think? Any thoughts? Where does your mind go when you hear something like that? We don't know how many years, but we know it's a while after. We know that there was time where there wasn't the drought, but this event had happened. Why was there the famine for three years all of a sudden. We don't know. (laughs) Well, then why'd you wait so long? But I think it's interesting that God doesn't let us get away with things. And maybe there's an area in our lives that needs to be dealt with. And it's something that's happened in our past or even recent past. Maybe it happened, you know, months ago, maybe years ago, but there's something that's there. We mistreated someone. We did something wrong. We hurt or wronged someone in some way. And things are going just splendidly, swimmingly. You know, things are just wonderful and going on. And all of a sudden there is this time of famine that comes up. And as David is seeking the Lord or as you're seeking God and saying, what's going on? All of a sudden you have this reminder. Remember that person that you did wrong to. I want you to go and apologize. I want you to go and make things right. But God, that was years ago. Yeah, but it still matters. It still, that's right. That's That was amen from Miles. It still matters to God. And time might pass, but there is always the opportunity to make things right. And it's never too late to start doing what is right. And so it doesn't matter that time has gone by. God has reminded David this happened and we need to set things right. And so David goes to the Gibeonites and also at the end of verse 3, David says, how shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? So that you, the Gibeonites, can bless God's people. I think that's an amazing phrase, that you outsiders, you foreigners, can bless God's chosen people. It's just a remarkable place of humility, really, for David and acknowledgement. Verse 4, so here's what the Gibeonites come out with. You know it's going to be good. The Gibeonites answer him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. 
They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. Just gets better and better, doesn't it? Just like, man, again, we see that there is collateral damage for the wrongs that are being done. Saul took it on his own to go and try and annihilate the Gibeonites for whatever reason, probably just prejudice. And God says, that wasn't right. We had an agreement. You need to get things right. David goes, what do you need us to do? We want seven of his descendants, male descendants, so that we can hang them there in the city so that we can let them know what Saul has done, who was, again, the Lord's chosen one. And David says, okay. Not, yeah, you have a question? <laughs> well, the idea was we're not going to just take anyone from Israel. We're going to make sure that it's Saul's descendants. So we're not here to kill like officials or people in your you know, city. We're not here to just start a war. But we are here to make restitution. But I would have said, no, you could demand silver or gold. You know, I'd rather you take silver and gold than kill someone's kids. But you see, I don't think they would have settled for that. I think that was the whole point of this. Uh, We don't have the right to do this, do this, but okay, here's what we want. Crazy. And again, whose fault is this? Saul's, yeah. Saul did this, and now his descendants are going to pay for it. Verse 7, the king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, and we know his story, the son of Saul, because of an oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. So we know that Mephibosheth, this time frame has already taken place where he has given him this oath. But the king took Armoni, and Mephibosheth, another one, the two sons of Ahiah's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Mehulamite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They put, they were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. And so it takes place. They're killed. It's brutal. I mean, this is just a horrendous event. And again, God didn't say, I want you to do this. God said, I want you to make things right. And this is how they did it. Just to make it clear. Now, he, he didn't stop it. David went there, and this is what happened. But seven of someone's sons were killed. And that's crazy. In verse 10, Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies. She did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. 
And so one of the moms just stayed there and just made this offering to God until the rains came. So we don't know how long it was, but the rains came, which was the end of this famine, which is God replenishing now the earth and the rain coming. Verse 11, when David was told what Aya's daughter, Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens in Jabesh-Gilead, for they had stolen their bodies from the public square at Beth-Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. We read about that earlier. David brought the bones to Saul, of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Anything stand out to you guys in this portion? Well, it's funny that all the people who are in the Hall of Faith seem to be lacking, but God sees all of us in gracious eyes. Thank goodness. Because if we see ourselves as not needing that grace, then we're... Yeah, he was used powerfully in so many ways. Um, Again, there is a lot taking place here. There's a lot of uh, kind of... You have to take into mind the time that this is happening, the way people dealt with each other. You know, I remember when I went to Europe one time, one of the people who was... Uh, I forget what church it was there in Wales, came up to a group of pastors, myself and a couple others, and I don't know who he thought we were, but he pleaded with us to talk to George Bush to stop capital punishment in the United States. As if we, okay, I'll go back to the White House and have a word. But for them, it was an atrocity that we would have capital punishment. And so, again, we have a cultural dynamic that's taking place. We have the pressure of what's going on, and David asks these people and leaves it, in a sense, up to their hands. And he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, there's always a cost to the sin. There's always a cost to rebellion. You never get out easy. And if you think you are... You're maybe trying to wiggle yourself out of actually what's happened. You know, Saul decimated these people. And seven are being killed and singled out, and we think, oh, that's terrible. There were probably tens of thousands that were wiped out. And so you compare the seven to the tens of thousands, and, and, well, maybe they're being gracious, again, looking at it in that time in this place. But there's going to be a cost. Someone's got to pay for these thousands who have died. And it's the same thing true with us. Someone's got to pay for the wrong we do. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who paid for the ultimate wrong that we do. But there's still the consequences of sin that we all have to deal with. And sometimes they aren't as, you know devastating as others, but sometimes they just, you know, can rock our world and shake things in a powerful way. David gives in. This takes place. What I think is interesting in this portion is Saul's concubine stays out there and just 
offers this offering to God with the grain by the bodies until it starts raining. And David hears that. And when David hears of her devotion, he goes back and makes good on the burial of Saul and Jonathan, who is his closest friend, and then takes these bodies. In other words, he he recognizes and remembers them. And again, we don't know how long this time was. Yeah, they were until the rain came, and then he said, okay, that's time. And we don't know how long that was, though. It could have been a week. It could have been two weeks. It could have been a month. We don't know. And so there was a period of time that passes before this event, but it was sparked by this woman's devotion. And I think that's an interesting piece of this puzzle, that because of what she did and her devotion to these her sons, um, David said, oh, you know what? I need to do something. And he was sparked to do something. And I think that's true. Have you ever seen someone do something and it sparks and causes you to do something good? You know, I know there's been a few times like I'm in Starbucks and then I pull up and they say, oh, they bought your drink for you. I'm like, really? I'm like, cool. Boom, take off. You know, then <laughs> you start to think, okay, well, let me let me pay it forward. Okay, I'll buy the drink for the person that's behind me. And I remember one time I bought the drinks for someone behind me and the lady goes, that's so neat. I remember one time we had like seven people did that. And she said, we were like counting, oh, let's see how long it'll go. They keep buying and buying, buying, you know, until that one person goes and there's a van behind them. And it's like, yeah, it'll be $45. (laughs) But there's something that happens that sparks in you. Like when you see something good, I'd like to see, I'd like to do something like that. Or it sparks you to want to be generous or kinder. It it melts your heart. It softens you in in so many ways, those kinds of things. And this woman's actions touched David. Her devotion touched him, and so he responded in that way. Um, I don't think so. The priests couldn't touch the dead body and then do their priestly duties. People had to touch the dead bodies to bury them. And it didn't mean they were permanently unclean. They just had to go through a time of cleansing. Um ceremonially, so I don't think it was in regards to that. It was specifically left just there for what the Gibeonites wanted, and this woman just wasn't going to move because, hey, this was one of her sons, or two of her sons. Yeah, I mean, it's just, again, it's, these past, we read them, but they're so full of emotion. I mean, so much is going on here. I mean, we just read a couple of chapters, but seven mom's sons were killed. For something Saul did. Why do we have to bear, bear that? It wasn't my fault. I mean, gosh, that's what I would say. And so, again, the consequences, the collateral damage. Verse 15, we'll finish the chapter here. Once again, so again, we don't know what time, just once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel, David's old buddies. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. So we know now this is towards the end of his life, because also they're going to tell him he can't fight no more. And Ishbi Benob, that was the name I wanted to name our next kid, but we didn't have another one. One of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels, and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. 
But Abishai, son of Zerah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. And so you can't come out and fight anymore. David's time as a warrior is now done. You, you can't come out and fight anymore. It's not, you're going to get killed, and then it's going to snuff out the lamp of Israel. Plus, we don't want to have to watch your back. Okay, You're no longer an asset to the battlefield. You're a detriment. So they didn't say it that way. They made it nice. You're the king. But it's done. And so David's time now as a warrior is through. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibike, the Hushite, killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. Again, now we're talking about all these brothers and descendants also were connected to Goliath. Okay, David's first encounter with the Philistines personally. Verse 19, in another battle with the son Philistine at Gob, Elanon, son of Jair, the Bethlehemite killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. And still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man. This guy wasn't just big, he was bizarre. He had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 24 in all. Okay, and that's for all you math geniuses, just to let you know. Okay, he also was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shema, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hand of David and his men. This is such a full circle. David started off fighting Goliath, the giant. And David is ending his battles with these descendants of Goliath. And it's also interesting that none of Saul's descendants fought against these descendants of Goliath. Remember Saul, when he was king and David came into his tent, Saul wasn't going to go fight Goliath. No one was. He was afraid. David said, no, we can do it. And so now David and his men and his descendants continue fighting these Huge men with six fingers and six toes, 24 in all. But Saul's descendants are nowhere to be found. And I I think it's an amazing picture of what our legacy can be. David's legacy, as tainted and twisted as it was, and as we saw with Absalom and the problems that were there, there was also this other part of a legacy that had faith and believed and would fight and would conquer, where Saul's didn't and never did. And so David's ending this battle where he started with the Philistines, specifically the descendants of Goliath, and now this is where we see the end of his battles. And then next week, we won't have time, this brings him into a song, and it's really cool because there's a psalm very similar to this song that he wrote years before when he was just a young lad, 
I guess he was Irish once. When he was just when he was but a lad, um, when he was a younger man, he wrote a song very similar to one that he's writing at the end of his life. And again, we're seeing this full circle, just even recognizing the faithfulness of God that He is a rock, a fortress, a deliverer, and our refuge. And He is the strength of our salvation. Any other comments or thoughts just on these? No, you're probably hitting on something. It's kind of demeaning to think you could replace people with gold or silver. Yeah, good point. Any other thoughts? No? Okay, got out of that one easy. Crazy couple of chapters. Well, let's pray. Fathers, I've been reading over these passages. Again, I am struck time and time again about how everything is connected. Lord, we are connected to the things that we do, and the things that we do connect us to not only what's happening immediately in that present, but they connect us to the future that we are creating. Father, that the things that have happened still have the ability to influence our lives and how important it is to be wise and make wise decisions. And Lord, throughout these passages, we see that there is so much devastation that takes place from the concubines to the interaction between David and his men and the brutal killing of Amasa to the city being sieged and Sheba and then further on Saul's descendants. And Lord, it just seems that there is the spilling of blood, the spilling of blood, the spilling of blood. And history has been covered in blood. And that leads us to the cross where, Lord, you gave your blood for all the devastation that we have done throughout all history, throughout all time. Lord, you have paid the ultimate price. And what you have done is enough for all. And Lord, we are grateful. We recognize, Lord, that it did require your blood to cover our sin, just like the blood of these seven sons were required for the sins of Saul. And Lord, thank you for giving of yourself for what we deserve so that we could have life. And Lord, I, I pray that as we continue to reflect on the importance of how we live, that we would remember, Lord, that you gave us the ability to live free and in abundance. Thank you, God, for this time. And bless, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.